Welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. In this episode, we do things a little bit differently, and I talk about, or we talk about a book, a new book uh, by Ian Bremmer called Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. And as I make clear, you don't have to have actually read the book to listen or to enjoy this podcast, because some of the dynamics that are driving um, the discussion in the book just make for an interesting discussion in itself. Uh, just uh, on the podcast front, the Jacobs podcast is now available on Spotify, um, and I know I'm getting a few listens too off Apple Podcasts, so if you are an avid listener, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for subscribing and rating and writing reviews as well. That's greatly appreciated. And I also would just remind listeners to share with their friends or to get in touch with me if you have any topics for future conversation or any correspondence or any issues you've had with what we've been discussing on the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Happy listening. Okay, well, welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. Joining me on this episode is Will Witheridge. Uh, Will was on not the last episode, but the episode before that um, for a three-way conversation with Jordan um, a couple of episodes back. And um, Will's an economist at the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris. Will, welcome back to the Jacobs Podcast. Great to be back, Sean. Excellent. Now, Will, I understand that you're not actually physically in Paris at the moment. Is that true? That is true. Uh, I'm actually speaking to you from Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, which oh, is very wow. pleasant. And whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm in. Um, I'm at Jacobs HQ um, Podcast HQ in Brisbane, Australia. So uh, different weather. Probably less glamorous settings than where you are at the moment, it seems. Oh, Brizzy's a great place too. Yep. No, absolutely. I um, Yeah, like I said, just very, very chilly at the moment though. Um, so I think you're in a t-shirt um, versus myself all wrapped up in a jumper. But I shouldn't complain because Brizzy, yeah, uh, the temperature's not too bad. <laughs> t-shirt t- and shorts over here at the moment. Very wow. nice. Very envious. Well, um, look, today we're going to talk, or we're going to actually look at a recent book. We're just going to try give this a try on the podcast. And the recent book's by Ian Bremmer, who's a famous political risk guru, and it's called Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. And I think this is a good idea because listeners don't need to have read the book, but because what it discusses or some of the topics it throws up, globalisation, automation, trade, capitalism social trends and so on, I think just makes for an interesting discussion in itself. And one of the things I think that is an interesting distinction to make is the distinction between globalism and globalisation. And I notice he makes, Bremer makes that point straight up. But Will, can you just shed some light on what the distinction between globalisation and globalism is? Sure. So globalisation is really a phenomena. And globalism is an ideology or a view about globalization. So, firstly, globalization is the increasing international flow of almost everything in our lives at the moment. So, uh, travel, goods and services overseas, um, cross-border finance, investment, but also technology, information, and people are moving you know, across borders in much higher levels than than 30 years ago. So, over this period, there's been this real takeoff in globalization and associated with that has been rising prosperity with these 
greater international linkages. But what this is also doing is linking the effective distance between countries and changing the nature of borders between them. So that's globalization. And globalism is the ideology that believes that this globalization is a, is a great thing for human progress and also believes in this international interdependence. And a key theme in the book is that globalization, which encompasses you know, technological progress, free markets, international competition, that this makes many lives better, but is, uh, you know, globalization also disadvantages some people within countries and, and can increase inequality. So I see that the failure of globalism, which, which Bremer sets out in this book, is uh, the, the failure by governments to really take these impacts of globalization seriously and the, the failure to really help those who need it mm. to adapt. Yeah. And that's why we've seen this, this backlash against, um, against globalism and globalization around the world. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah, because I think like it's a so good distinction to that's, just make. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the look, distinction between the two. Yeah, sure. And look, it's a good distinction to make first up because I think you know it's very difficult to rail against. I think raised living standards, um, better tra enhanced trade, cross border flow. You know, like all of these things, we benefit from greatly. And I think what's interesting though is the globalism, or the the you know it can be deployed depending on what side of politics you're on, you know, we can say, you know, the title of the book's us versus them, and them can mean anything from the governing elite or big corporations and bankers and financial elites, and then, but for others, them can mean, you know, governments cheating citizens uh, with preferential treatment to minorities, immigrants, or any other groups that receive explicit protection under the law. And, um, yeah, I think it's just an interesting um, distinction. And can be deployed by any either side, you know, where where yeah, and I think, um, yeah, and I think another another interesting point that Bremer um, makes about with with globalization is that national governments have have their citizens from change. So, as well as all these associated benefits and the living standards, there's also you know, potential um, uh, influence of shocks from from uh, internationally and. Mm -hmm. And this change in, in a lot of different parts of people's lives, and that that dynamic can also help to create this us versus them group dynamics and, and tribalism, which we we see in in many places around the world. Yeah, for sure, and that's like definitely what we'll absolutely get to that. And I think one of the other points too is just what jumps out is other than the distinction when you're really going through this is automation and how it keeps coming up again and again. Um, Bremer keeps talking about it and it sort of seems it's a huge threat, of course. Um, it's putting a lot of pressure on governments and then there's also opportunities as well. But I think there's just so much pressure, as you mentioned, on government, states and political leaders. And there's one interesting stat, um, and I'll just quote verbatim here, is a 2017 study from the Institute for Spatial Economic Analysis and it found that nearly every major American city will see half, so half of its current jobs replaced by robots by 2035. And it says it's not a surprise that most of the endangered jobs are in the administrative, sales, food prep and service sectors. Um, I, you know, I remember, I'm not, I'm not a Luddite, um, but I just kind of think I'm weary of such calls. I can remember when I was younger, I was into puppets and 
you know, the Thunderbirds and all that sort of stuff. And one of the shows that I just can continually remember that was on all the time was Space 1999 and that would be living on the moon and all of these sort of utopian visions around technology, robots would be doing everything. And I think we've certainly heard these kinds of calls before. And I'm, you know, I am cautious because innovation change, you know, all these trends of mass disruption have been with us before. But I think... What is, is this really the threat, automation, or opportunity that we should be wary of? Is this time different, do you think? Well, automation and the, the rise of robots, computers, artificial intelligence, I mean, I think it is going to cause significant change and disruption in, in our lives in the future. Hmm. It's really a threat and opportunity, this, this change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we're thinking about um, employment, it, it depends on the nature of the job and the industry. So, you know, a big, a big threat is going to be in around routine tasks. And so we can we can look back into the past and see that there used to be many more typists and low skilled manufacturing jobs being replaced by machines. And it seems that that at the moment now we're progressing to more advanced human tasks. Mm. And another thing that is different, seems, this seems to be ha- happening on a far and a larger scale than, than some change before. So mm-hmm. you know, we think about the future where driverless cars and trucks are going to replace uh, taxi, Uber and truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And also there's, there's likely to be a displacement of some, some higher skilled work. So some lawyers being potentially replaced by uh, computer programs doing legal legal research or, and, and square uh, diagnosing um, as, a, as a potential uh, future rather than doctors. So, so that's a, that is a threat to a large number of existing jobs. Mm. So I think we, we do need to be um, wary of that, that, that change is coming. Uh, but then there's also, there's also a, the, the flip side, the opportunity that comes from this technological progress and, and change. So you know, computer software doing these routine tasks gives, gives us humans more time to do things which computers can't do and things which we enjoy. So you know, there's creative work and connecting ideas and this change is just all continuing progress is going to create demand for new, new jobs which we don't even know exist yet, working with machines. Um, and also there'll be you know, a continued need for um, jobs and activities with a, with a human touch which might be things like nursing or aged care. So I don't think that you know, it's all jobs that are going to be shed, but it's um, you know, it's going to be a, a significant change in in our lives. Yeah, sure. Look, and I think one of the interesting points is that you know, like you look, for example, at things that have been said before about not specifically automation, but calls like this about jobs being wiped out and um, by innovation and advances in technology. You know, like the horse and buggy industry being decimated by cars. You know, there's so many examples throughout history. And I think we don't, people probably see these stats and think, well, look, half of the, you know, we're talking about, yeah, half of current jobs replaced by robots by 2035. And, you know, that's coming up pretty, it's in the next decade and a half. But um, there's a capacity of just people to respond. So just states aside, and it's a good segue to the next point, but, um, people sort of pivot themselves to responding to the market and getting qualified for new industries and new jobs. And I think that states are under, and you mentioned it before, Will, 
they're all responding differently. They're under tremendous pressure to create 21st century jobs. Um, or, you know, in some cases, author more authoritarian states has actually responded to this change by keeping their disruptive populations or these trends under control. And so you've got two things here. Like one, there's an impulse for control by some states, and then others as well respond and, like you say, look look to it, look to automation as an opportunity and even, you know, centralised spending programs. And there's, it's mentioned in the book about King Salman in Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 project. And I think, um, you know, if I'm sceptical of innovation and jobs being wiped out, you know, wholesale, it's also just long-range government programs. Um, especially, well, I think it depends on the the political or the, I guess, the the governance structure in place. But long-range programs, I think they're, you know, that you can easily lose sight of them. You know, if you put a 2030 project out there, it's not sort of subject to the whims of an electoral cycle. And But I just wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think the optimal policy responses, maybe tease out a bit more from your previous um, response there about what optimal policy responses should states be actually aiming for here to see this as an opportunity and not as a threat? Yeah, so it's um, it's hard to know how we're, we're going to end up. And you mentioned earlier about uh, uh, these forecasts that people have made in the past for where we would be now and how different the world looks to, to those. And um, there's, a, there's a great quote by Niels Bohr, a, a Danish physicist, given I'm, I'm speaking to you here from Copenhagen, <laughs> and it's that prediction results, especially if it's about the future. Mm. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots of uncertainty about where we're going to end up a few decades. So I don't think that policy should really be betting on specifics like a, a certain industry or, or technology being the, the, you know, the new paradigm in the, in the future. Mm. But in saying that, it also seems that the, the general direction is pretty clear and the, you know, this, this continuing advance of technology will, you know, that, that progression will occur. And so mm. to combat these us versus them dynamics, which this sort of change is, is causing, you know, and preventing higher inequality, we want policies so that these, you know, these gains are going to be broadly based rather than just going to, to a few. So mm. you know, firstly, we want to avoid building walls and, um, mm. you know, and governments, you know, really protecting a certain group in the population or advantaging them over others. You know, that's a, that's a temptation because of these, um, these harmful impacts of globalisation, but, but doing so would be, um, would be a mistake because we'd be missing out on the significant gains, which this also, um, which this also provides. So just a, a, a few things which I think that um, you know, are areas in which policy can help those who need it to, to adapt and thrive. You know, our education system needs to update and, and provide skills that prepare them for this workforce. So that doesn't mean that everyone's just going to be doing coding all the time, although you know, some of that might be useful. It's, um, I think it's really about something like learning how to learn and continue to change and develop your skills in a world of this continual disruption. Mm. Uh, another thing related to that is helping people who need to transition to a, a different job that no longer exists uh, through retraining or transition assistance. Uh, so this, this needs to be more than just a, a social safety net to catch displaced workers. 
What we really want is a, a social safety trampoline so that these people can bounce forward into these new jobs, which will exist in the future. So this is really hard to do, and I'm not sure how we know how to do that on a large scale at the moment, but, but that's, um, that's the second point. And, and lastly, we need political systems and institutions that are robust to this disruption and that are, that are inclusive of people and allow them to participate and are representative and fair rather than succumbing to these uh, harmful us versus them dynamics. So, so that's what I think is, you know, is a good place to start in thinking about this uh, long-term direction without being too specific or, um, or prescriptive about what, um, what the world's going to look like. in the Yeah, absolutely. And, I think those are like very decent points. And the interesting thing to acknowledge, though, as well, is that it's very difficult to pull levers in developing states where um, the government doesn't have the same sort of, I think, uh, capability, let's say it does, in the United States. So you look at the impact of automation on, um, on developing states, and it's actually a lot higher so the stats are 65 percent of jobs in nigeria 69 percent in sorry 65 percent in nigeria 69 percent in india and 70 percent 77 percent pardon me in china and you know that china and india in particular they're not small countries so you're talking you know well over a billion people but it's not um you know there's this is these are huge numbers of people that are going to be potentially displaced and as i mentioned there's you don't have the same sort of levers of policy there to um, launch either long-range programs or to keep things under control so i think it's just interesting too about the capabilities of certain governments to actually do stuff where they probably they know that what they need to do but they don't actually have the capability to get, to do these things and especially those points you've raised as well yeah a lot of the discussion around these us versus them dynamics and globalization focuses on advanced countries and pointing to things like Brexit and, and Donald Trump. But uh, something which I didn't really appreciate until um, reading this book is that developing countries are, are likely to be hit even harder for these reasons that you've mentioned, that uh, they're generally less technologically advanced and their workers have, on average, uh, lower skills. So those are more susceptible by automation. And then there's the capabilities. So they have less resources to invest in you know, upgrading technology, provide education and retraining. You know, that's going to potentially make these developing countries uh, really fragile going forward. And that the, um, you know, it's quite a great picture that um, Bremer paints for where this could end up uh, going in, in some of these large developing countries, as you mentioned. Yeah, that's right. And I think... What's interesting too is the states are facing different kinds of social pressures. So just moving into the discussion about how the pressures on people, um, you know, and how states are responding. But one really interesting example is South Africa. And it's mentioned that there's no one under the age of 30 that's old enough to remember apartheid. So you've got many of these young people um, in the country who you know, who see the African National Congress of the ANC, which is the main party in or Mandela's party in South Africa, and they don't see it of the power of the, the, the party of liberation, but it's actually power and, and privilege and ensconced privilege. And and of course they, you know, then in turn see globalization not as a source of personal empowerment, but it's a tool 
that foreigners use to steal South Africa's natural wealth. So it's, and this is a line from the book, but in that sense, they have more in common with Steve Bannon than with Nelson Mandela. So I thought that was an interesting point that states are facing all of, well, developing states in particular, just not only difficult levers or really, um, I guess, not very brittle levers to, to pull, but then also a different trend in expectations from its citizens. Yeah, and partly that is that technology and, and globalisation have allowed for you know, the citizens in, in developing countries to be more exposed, um, all of us be more exposed to, to international ideas and can, you know, seeing how other people live is a, is a powerful you know, motivator for some of these, these changes and, and the dynamics and, and the rising expectations and what people demand for their government uh, compared to you know, where there's um, you know, levels of, high levels of corruption and, and people wanting better, better services from their, from their government. So that's, uh, that's another part of this that's uh, quite interesting in, in the developing country side. Yeah, no, that's a good point, actually. So you sort of, you tuned in to what's going on in different countries and therefore you sort of have, you bring those, report those, import those expectations back onto your own government. Yeah, it is, it is really interesting, this, um, this sort of stuff. Cool. And one of the other points, too, is just um, that we mentioned at the start, globalisation and all of these benefits, flatter borders, trading, people coming together. Um, it, will, it certainly implies people coming together. But it's interesting to read some of the statistics around how the opposite's actually been the case and how isolated um, some people are becoming from one another, especially in... Um, Western democracies like the United States. And there's a really interesting study that it, that's quoted, um, a 2013 study that, from Reuters, um, Ipsos, and it found that 40% of white Americans and about 25% of non-white Americans are surrounded exclusively by friends of their own race. And that just really jumped out to me, especially when we've had, like I mentioned, all of this globalisation and this intermingling and this idea that people are becoming more connected when it's clear that with, from that study or from that particular instance there that's mentioned about how uh, people are actually just hanging out with people like them. Yeah, so this, this isolation point is an interesting one. It has been enabled by technology as well as bringing us together it can allow people to you know form uh, isolated groups so i think that there's some things that you know policy might do to um, to uh, interact this but there's also things that we can also do in our in our own lives so on the on the policy side i think that we could, we could design public housing throughout a city so that um, it mixes different groups together rather than concentrates them in particular areas. Also helping people to, to move around to um, rising uh, geographic regions. Mm. And this sort of infrastructure planning and projects throughout a, a city to ensure that services are available throughout and providing public spaces where, you know, that are attractive and still to people to mix. And also things like the education system you know, not pre not prohibiting upward mobility, uh, so that you know any of aptitude could go to a high quality school. 
So that's some things yeah. a policy could do. But I think there's also things that we can do ourselves and there's traps that we all fall into in, um, in being caught in echo chambers and, and reading and watching things that we, we like and cater to our own uh, So you know, there's, there's things like reaching out and, and seeking out uh, different voices, considered, considered thinkers who have uh, different views to you. And you really need to make an effort to seek these out online because the algorithms won't suggest them to you. So there's things like that that we can do in, in listening and understanding to, to a diverse group of people rather than just getting caught up in, in shouting and, and enjoying our own, our own little bubble. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I think on a previous... Yeah, just quickly, well, um, on a previous podcast, we've mentioned, I think it was with Jordan, that um, I can't remember which episode, but the capacity for narrow casting and then just to be forced into thinker like communities if yeah like as you say the algorithm is there that you're never actually sampling anything from from any other um from any other content from some unlikely places that you wouldn't otherwise think and um yeah look i think that's a great point actually and something i was reminded of recently from ryan holiday that on his, on his mailing list and he put out that it's just really important to draw ideas from different areas and learn from some really unlikely um, places um, because, yeah, not just sort of look and see the name or who's behind it and think, oh, well, I can't learn anything from that. And it's a really good example, I think, of just, yeah, like you mentioned, the individual or people being or taking into account these things or learning from each other and not sort of always looking to the policy or what's going on with, or what the government are up to. Yeah, I think so. And, and maybe, you know, maybe there's a, with enough, with enough demand for this social networks or algorithms will, um, will rise up and, and become popular in, um, in helping to uh, overcome this, this isolation and um, us forming into particular groups. It's very, it's a, it's a natural uh, instinct that we have that you uh, it's, it's very difficult to uh, overcome and and being aware of it is, is a is a start yeah definitely and i think this is you know one of these things where i was just at a discussion this morning um actually where this the the power of youtube and and technology and globalization can definitely enhance that when you're sharing especially when you're sharing ideas um, because they're things that you know that can speak to people that are universal. That you, know, you look at some of these, and again, this has been covered in previous podcasts. But about the why some things are just so hugely popular globally. Um, you know, long podcasts. You know, use Tyler Cowen, um, Russ Roberts from Econ Talk. You know, the list just is on, goes on and on. But you know, there's people from all over the globe tuning into these sorts of things, and I think purposely trying to avoid that thinker-like community but using or straddling technology to to do that yeah it's a great point and um you know this uh this this te technology cuts both ways of areas and there's sort of changes in that you know we've got um exposure to more information than than ever and uh it's mm -hmm. about how what we uh what we choose to what we choose to seek out and access so um yeah, it's a it's a it's a really uh, really interesting point and dynamic, and maybe we're sort of working to work this out of how this uh, you know this technology and world is you know that we might want to change it to look in uh, in slightly different ways. Sure, 
Now, I know, Will, towards the end of the book, um, and you're an economist, and I really wanted to get your thoughts or your views on this one, but Bremer talks about a basic income. And, you know, I was sceptical at first, but then I was actually quite interesting or surprised to read about some of its advocates. So um, this guaranteed basic income. So he, did, he mentions that Thomas Paine proposed it in 1797, and he says to create a national fund out of which there shall be paid to every person when arrived at the age of 21 years, the sum of 15 pounds sterling as a compensation in part for the loss of his or her natural inheritance by the introduction of the system of landed property. And also the sum of 10 pounds per annum during life to every person now living at the age of 50 years and to all others as they shall arrive at that age. Now, I think we're kind of beyond the landed property um, elements, but it's very interesting because I think, you know, you wipe a few things away, but that, that idea of a basic income has had some currency for a while, especially from Thomas Paine going back to 1797. And then also I was interested to learn President Nixon proposed a modest version of a partial basic income in 1968. But like I mentioned, Will, I think it's just interesting. I was sceptical at first, but then surprised to read about some, like, uh, some of its advocates and I just wanted to get your thoughts as, as an economist um, on, on a universal basic income, if it's a good idea or not, or what are some of the considerations that one has to weigh up. Sure. And this is, this is a topic which is getting increasingly discussed and, um, and trialled in certain parts of the world. So we'll, we'll know a bit more in the coming years as some of these experiments mm -hmm. with basic income uh, uh, come to fruition and we, we see what's, what's going on. So um, just to step back for a moment, so a, a universal basic income is a proposal that everyone in society over a certain age receives a sum of money from the government. So this could be in Australia something like $10,000, $15,000 annually, which you, you receive in, in regular payments for, for a government. And so this is motivated by, by the idea that, you know, in the future with... Uh, uh, in, in the context of the book, you know, with automation taking up a large uh, share of the, the work of the population, you know, there'll be uh, potentially more people unemployed or only able to work at a very low wage. So in this high-tech world, you know, we should be uh, supporting all these, uh, these displaced people and providing them with, with enough money to live off. So there are some, there are some interesting proponents of this on, um, on different sides of the, the political spectrum. And so there's really reasons why people advocate for it on, uh, on ethical grounds and grounds. So on the ethical grounds, there's this argument that, that it's, it's fair that everyone in the society should have enough money to live at a basic level. So, and this greater social support, you know, it sounds like a good idea. Um, but I think, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's important to realise that if provide some people in a society with more help, then it has to be paid paid for from somewhere else. So if, uh, if a basic income is just going to be added on top of existing benefits, then we're going to need much, much higher levels of, of taxation in other parts of the economy if we're going to be able to provide that, that money. And you know, that we could make that sort of choice as a society if this is something we value. But I guess I'm sceptical in that, that governments are going to, at the same time, implement the higher taxes that are needed to finance the basic income uh, at, at the same time, introducing it. 
And so this, if they don't, this could create big budgetary challenges. But, but maybe, maybe this can be done. And the other side of the, um, that people argue it is on this efficiency grounds. So with a basic in that can replace other social support programs, which can be quite complex for people to navigate if they're receiving multiple different payments. And um, they can also face you know, disincentives to work because if they, if they get a job and start earning money, then they lose their benefits as well as having to start paying tax. So you know, if we just give everyone a basic income, then it, it removes that disincentive to work. Everyone's free to, free to work or, or not. So, and in addition, you know, this, this sort of program of just giving people uh, unconditionally money is cheaper to administer. So in some ways, we'll be able to give people more money than on average, and they'll be free to make their own choices about what they do with this cash rather than having it being tied to particular conditions. So, you know, there's also some merit in this, this side of the argument, but um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure about how large these efficiency gains are. And in addition, we'll be paying this uh, basic income to everyone in a country. So, no, I guess that what I'd say is that there seems to be some good, um, good reasons to, to think about. I think there's a lot of uh, difficulties and challenges in the notation and design of it. Yeah, and that's yeah. There's some good points there. One of the things I was just thinking when I read it, and you prompted my prompted me again, is just um, like in in the same sense as a GST. So you know that was brought in, but at the same time there were so many taxes that fell aside. So in the same way that you'd look at this existing benefits, it's kind of a way to potentially if you were you know any policy maker was serious about this is you know you do have if you were to adopt a universal basic income you would sort of have to curb or um, pull away from a lot of the existing benefits out there which you know carries its a lot of political risk um, as well but then you know that could be a blueprint or a template for it which is kind of interesting because it certainly solved that extra level of taxation point that you you raise about having to get all these this additional money to, but if you just went did away with a lot of the existing benefits, kind of like yeah, as I mentioned, a GST, um, you know, you bring in something big, and then um, you do away with all the a lot of different rats and mice type um, taxes. Um, but yeah, that's that are, that just jumped out to me. I think as a might potentially a template um, for anyone who might be serious about looking at this. Yeah. So the there are, as I said, there are some there are some trials of this underway around the world, and but they're generally fairly small scale, and the amount of money that people are getting is fairly, you know, it's it's substantial. It's it's five hundred dollars a month, uh, but I think the, the what people some envisage of the a, a universal basic income is is much larger, and it is it is universal, so everyone in a society receives it. So we'll um. Yeah, we'll see how these, these sort of trials work. Um, but mm. for myself, that I think that uh, you know that that discussion about whether this is added to um, or replacing uh, existing programs is really important in um, in having that sort of discussion and to mm. to build consensus around that. And it seems like that is that is particularly challenging in the the current political environments for such a big social policy mm. change to be implemented. 
Uh, oh, for yeah. myself, yep. I think that it could a basic income could be better targeted towards those with very low incomes who most need it. So mm. rather than just giving it to um, giving it to everyone in a society, I'd prefer to see it be a you know a, an unconditional standard payment which uh, is paid to everyone and actually increases as people work and earn earn more. So this is like a negative income tax which subsidizes and encourages employment by low income earners and then that amount of money paid by the government is gradually reduced as people earn more. So this helps uh, stop you know above average or high income people receiving this basic income and means that we could potentially give more money to the the lower income people. Um, you know, thinking about youth and elderly who who particularly need it and might be able to encourage work rather than um, rather than dissuade uh, uh, a low income from it, like the, that a basic a basic income might. Yeah, and so it's kind of like you've got yeah you've got that incentive uh, inbuilt, which is a really important component as you've just you've talked about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Well, um, well, look, I think that wraps up the the main points around the book around automation that states and um, governments and politicians are under all kinds of pressures um, not just from technology and globalization but um, from their populations too um, and then with an interesting sort of round out there about how people are becoming more isolated um, as well as becoming more connected um, and then also this um, point about a universal basic income, I think, is an interesting one because um, look, it's a discussion I didn't know was actually happening, but um, you're obviously very tuned into um, economic circles, and certainly one I didn't know that was a discussion being had until I until I read this book. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to discuss, or anything else that you just want to make readers aware of that you think is a good point, or that you want to pick up on, Will? Uh, no, I I think that. Um it's interesting. In the, the there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on at the same time here, and with uh, around uh, globalization and technology and and international linkages, and there's it feels like a a, a lot of a lot of influence of factors that are really accelerating at the same time, and it it's impacting a whole lot of uh, countries and you know. Uh, the situation between countries. So it's it's a really um, uh, interesting area for us to be thinking about, and, and the the political dynamics that uh, are playing out in in many countries around the world. And you know, it seems like this is this is not as soon. So it's it's great to be um, be thinking about these issues and 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 discussing them and, and becoming making ourselves aware of them. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I've I've quite enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, sure. And look, I just to make my little point too, and I probably should have mentioned this at the top. It's it's um it's a obviously a very timely book because it, it it unpacks a lot of explanation. There's not a lot of finger pointing in here. It just unpacks a lot of the dynamics that we're seeing now. And you know, if you're sort of in the market for easy explanations for things, it's probably not going to be a book that will jump out or be hugely appealing but it just goes into some of those dynamics as you mentioned but then the I guess the basis for some of the the grievances that a lot of people have um, on both sides of a you know when we talk of left to right dynamics um, but 
it unpacks and goes into some of those those grievances and doesn't just dismiss those grievances as hot air, but tries to unpack the the trends or what's driving those those grievances as well. So, um, yeah, look, the book is called Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremer, and um, it just came out, gosh, in, a few months ago, so it's uh, hot off the press. But if you're interested in these things or just, of course, learning more about the discussion, I encourage you to um, get out and get a copy. But, Will, thank you very much for joining us from Europe today. And... Um, I hope you can get back to sleep. If you is it daylight there? I don't even. Sorry, I don't even know what time it is there in Denmark. It is daylight here, and the days are incredibly long. The sun's going down at about 11 p.m. Um, here at the moment. So no, but um, about to get into the day. So thanks a lot for um, uh, having me back on the podcast, John. Brilliant, Will, and look forward to having you on again soon. I know we've got another discussion. Uh, with Jordan, so a three-way discussion again coming up, which I think is going to be really interesting. So um, I'm looking forward to that, Will, and thanks so much for coming on. Indeed, looking forward to it. Thanks, John.